Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Peter Drucker, the prominent business expert dubbed the man who invented management, once said, in the post-capitalist society, it is safe to assume that anyone with any knowledge will have to acquire new knowledge every four to five years or else become obsolete. This statement is not only profound, but is also very relevant to the modern CFO and financial leader. In fact, CFOs are under pressure to transform from a transactional compliance-based controller to a strategic financial leader. There is too much detail and complexity, information overload, inadequate forecasting capabilities, not enough time to make sound decisions, misunderstanding of how to truly reduce cost without hurting the long-term viability of the business. There are too many measures and KPIs, and there's not enough emphasis or expertise in the area of risk management for financial leaders to remain in a defensive status quo position. To remain viable and to meet the changing demands of the ever-evolving accounting and finance function, CFOs must not only adapt but transform. And that's why I'm excited to talk with Troy Schroeder today. So growing up, what experiences helped shape your life to this day? And what was your childhood like, Troy? You know, it's, it's funny you ask that because I, I have that conversation with my boys right now. And I look how they're growing up, which was, is vastly different than how I grew up. And I grew up in a traditional neighborhood where there were kids all over the place. So that's different because we're out here in rural Castle Rock and we, we don't live in a traditional neighborhood. We have quite a bit of space between us and our neighbors, and there's not a lot of kids running around, but they're heavily involved in sports, in, in organized sports. And so they're not getting that same experience. And then the other big difference is the technology, which I just, you know, we've, as parents, we've really cracked down on that because I can see that the phones and, and just other things of technology that are of interest to boys at, at my boys' ages, which is uh, 12 and 14, is very distracting to them. And I see things like, they're not as observant, I don't think, just driving down the road. You know, they'd rather get on their phone and, and text or play a game, which we, you know, constantly cracking down on. Just little things like how far have we driven? What roads are we on? Do you know the streets to get back to your own home? 
just observations. So I kind of reflect back on that. And then, you know, I, I had some hobbies that I think really kind of helped me out. I think one of my better strengths is just problem solving skills presented at things that either, whether it's at home or at work, not knowing what to do or what exactly needs to be done. I know where I need to go, but not knowing exactly how to get there. Uh, things that I did as a kid, I loved building model airplanes. That was kind of my thing. And so, you know, there were, there were some, definitely some very good you know, problem solving skills at a young age, I think that were developed from that. Me and my grandfather just tinkered around with things a lot and, and built, you know, little things or fixed things in the camper that he had that we'd go fishing in. So I, I reflect back on that and trying to get my own boys to have some of those own experiences, helping me fix things around the house to teach them how to solve problems. So I look back on that as, you know, some pretty fond memories growing up. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that about your kids because I have a four-year-old son and a seven-year-old daughter. And we just recently went on a road trip to go see the in-laws. And you know, it's, it's a 12-hour trip to Dallas. And I don't even know how many times they looked out the window. I mean, they're, I know. they're, they're, they were glued to the iPad watching movies the whole time. They, they probably didn't even know, you know what was outside of them. So it's interesting yep. you say that. And also, like I remember as a kid too, like going out in the goalie next to our house and building forts and creating things. And, and yeah, it's, it's different generationally from where we were and and where our kids are coming up. And so So, I do, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's an important thing to pay attention to, especially as a parent. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. So when you were a kid, were you like this numbers nerd in school? Did you like math? Did you aspire to be a CFO one day or tell me how, how did you become passionate about finance? (laughs) So that's an interesting discussion. So I actually, growing up, I wanted to be a pilot, right? Hence the building uh, airplanes. So I went to uh, school, didn't have a lot of, you know, guidance (laughs) from my parents and that's okay. I thought it'd be a good idea talking to my guidance counselor in high school to go to Texas A&M and enroll in their aerospace engineering program. And, and, uh, you know, great experience, wonderful school. Uh, it was fun to go away from home, you know, for the first time at 18, 19, 20 years old. But that was uh, far and above any sort of mental capacity that I had or would ever have in life, right? Those those people, their brains operated on a comp- completely different wavelength. And it made me realize I wasn't all that great at math, you know, especially some of that really advanced math. Uh, I was good enough. And I, at that point, like all these dreams I had of being a pilot and everything, they were just felt like they were being crushed. I'm like, what the heck am I going to do? So I come home from Texas A&M and I, and I start meeting people. Ironically, I met a partner at Pricewaterhouse. I met a, a former manager at Pricewaterhouse that was out running a very successful consulting business. I met a home builder whose background was in public accounting. And I thought, well, you know, maybe there's something to this accounting thing. Maybe I could just try that out. And, you know, and I got into um, sort of taking some accounting classes at a community college to figure out what the heck I was going to do and realized I was like, you know, I'm, I'm okay at this accounting thing. And then I went to the University of Denver and got into uh, their accounting program, finished up with my master's degree and then started with Arthur Anderson uh, in 1995. And what I will say is, is that it's been an interesting journey, especially later in life. You really kind of just start to discover who you are. And, you know, I'm very grateful for the company that I work for because I've had the benefit of quite a bit of executive coaching and that whole piece of accurate self-insight has really come to light. 
it turns out that the analytic side of my thinking and, and style is not my natural style. It's an adaptive style that I kind of dialed up, or that I dial up in times of stress or when I really need to put on the accounting hat. I have much more of a, a creative side to me. You know, I, I still do enjoy painting and doing work around the house, landscaping projects that, that kind of bring out that, that creativeness. That's definitely more of my natural style. So it, it's, you know, when you ask, you know, how did I become passionate about it? I wouldn't say that I'm still passionate about finance. What I enjoy about my job is, is that literally everything that goes on in a company comes across the CFO's desk. There's little to nothing that I don't know what's going on. But knowing the numbers, I think helps me just be a more strategic you know, business partner to the CEO and the COO as far as just helping develop paths forward. So when I really have to put the accounting cap on, I, I really got to take a deep breath, you know, and uh, <laughs> sit down, close my door, really think hard. So I'd much rather be working on developing a strategic plan or figuring out the next sort of reinvention of our company we need to be thinking about. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I was listening to an interview of Stephen Schwartzman, who is the co-founder of the world's largest private equity firm, Blackstone. And in this interview, he's talking and he said, look, you know, when I was growing up, I was horrible at math. Yeah. He said, when, I, when I got into Wall Street, the first firm he worked for, he didn't even know what a stock was. And <laughs> here, here he is, this very, very successful person in the world of finance. And um, to your point, you know, when people think about this like CFO role, which is you know, numbers heavy, analytically driven, oftentimes they, they think that you have to be in the back office with the green shade on doing debits and credits and yeah. And knowing all that, but I, I think, you know, your success has come from this problem solving skill set that you developed at an early age. And then going on to what you just said about, you know, being able to be creative and think strategically in your role to help the business beyond just, you know, producing financial statements. Yeah, it's much, much more fun. And, and I'm fortunate to working for a, a, a larger general contractor, our, our accounting and finance needs, you know, well-run company, uh, historically profitable. The accounting isn't overly complicated, which, you know, suits my abilities and, and desires very well. Yeah, absolutely. So like throughout your experience, you worked for Arthur Anderson. I worked for Ernst & Young, which basically EY swallowed up Arthur Anderson. In this position, I had the opportunity to look at a lot of different companies. I I worked with a financial services firm. I worked in biotech, oil and gas, and you you have experience like that as well. Did you ever, like along the way, were you ever drawn to other functions like operations or sales? Or did you ever think, hey, I want to make a pivot out of this financial stuff? Oh, yeah. I still think about that. When I was at Arthur Anderson, you know, that was at a time where Anderson Consulting was still part of the, the mix. Arthur Anderson still had its own consulting practice as well within it. And, you know, it wasn't uncommon for those paths to cross. And I saw some of the stuff the consultants were doing. And yeah, I was really drawn towards that at an early age and then started realizing that, you know, I think I would have a better chance at migrating beyond the CFO role someday to be more on the, the operation side of the business or the strategic side of the business. And I felt and I started realizing that I, that was going to be better suited in privately held companies. You go the especially the the public route, that's where early on you got to be pretty savvy technically 
uh, accounting wise. And that didn't really excite me a whole lot. And the roles, especially now, just looking back after Sarbanes-Oxley and all that, the roles of the CFO in those public companies just became even less appealing. And so even today, I think about, God, you know, even though I'm the CFO, I get to act in many regards like a COO, which is, which is super fun. Um, I, I enjoy that so much more. Uh, I get to be on the, you know, I'm on the board of our company. I mean, I, I helped start a, a charter school that my boys 10 years ago, me and five other parents got together and started this school. Total startup. I had, we had no idea what we were doing, but we figured it out, built a 70,000 square foot school, got it financed. Today, 900 kids go there, you know, 100 people on payroll. It's been up and running for eight years now. You know, those, those types of things are much more engaging to me. So I, I'm always thinking about how, you know, how, how can I reinvent myself a little bit? You know, does that COO role ever, you know, become available? How, how can I continue to not lose sight of and develop the skills around a CFO, but let's not lose sight of, you know, some of these other more strategic roles that are, that are needed. And it is fun because my company allows, you know, gives me the flexibility to do that, which, which I appreciate. Yeah. And that's very empowering and quite impressive about the school as well. So let me ask you this. How does someone, how do they become a CFO? Is it a position you aspire to achieve? And what do you think holds back some controllers from advancing from their position to a CFO position? Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. I would say that it may be a couple things. You know, sometimes if you're a really good controller and you're super technical and that's needed in a business, that could, could potentially hold you back, right? Where a CFO or CEO recognizes the fact that, you know, we have some pretty complex accounting, finance issues, and man, this person just does a great job. There's never any issues with the audit. That's hard to let go of, right? Yeah. And And then secondly, I think, some people, if you really are analytically oriented, and that is your your natural style and your adaptive style, and that's just kind of who you are, and I think that's you know that's a true accountant. It's going to be hard for you to dial up some of that creativity and more of the the strategic mindset. You know, it, it's going to take a lot of work and effort. You know, because I, I think that's the difference between being a a head-led leader versus a heart-led leader. I yeah. think sometimes it's hard for people, depending on your makeup, to make that journey from your head to your heart, which is, you know, some of that heart-led is where some of the creativity and strategic insights come from. So th- those are a couple things I see that might hold controllers back. I like that. And I, and I agree. It's difficult sometimes to transition from this transactional compliance mindset into more of a strategic mindset. And like yeah. you said, I, I really like that term, that heart-led leadership is really key. So let me, let me ask you this. Outside of work, you enjoy skiing and camping and, and spending time with your family. What do you believe regarding like work-life balance? I, I don't really like that term work-life balance because I don't think that's necessarily possible. I think things are always out of balance. But when you think about like 
balancing your priorities or like Jeff Bezos says, work-life harmony. Is this something that should be prioritized at all job levels and throughout all points of your career? Or are there times where you just have to grind and sacrifice, you know, maybe relationships or social time or other things to advance in your career? Can you talk a little bit about what you've experienced along your way? Yeah, we, my wife and I were fortunate that, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's kind of a, a pro anacon, right? We waited quite a, a while to have kids. And so we didn't, we got married when I was uh, 29, about to turn 30. And then we didn't have our, our first son uh, for seven years. So, and, and I also, it's ironic that, well, it's not completely ironic, right? I met my wife at Arthur Anderson. Those, uh, <laughs> those, those firms tend to be, you know, kind of love boats, I think at times. Right. <laughs> all these, all, all these young, attractive, like-minded people coming out of school, right? It's, it's inevitable. So we met at Arthur Anderson and, and had built that understanding at a pretty young age, you know, it just, it was beat into you, I guess, at those, at those public accounting firms uh, about, you know, look, you gotta, you're here, you gotta do what it takes to get your job done. And so we had that, that understanding before we had kids. And, and I would say that, you know, my career really started when I got to my current position, you know, I started there 18 years ago as the controller and, and that's where I really kind of grew up, so to speak. And there were a lot of seven day a week, you know, leading ERP conversions early on that I was fortunate to kind of get out of the way and really establish myself establish that relational capital, that respect, you know, that work ethic to where that once we started having kids, it did become important to me. And I did want to be a good husband and father. And it's worked out, right? And and there are still ebbs and flows where it's times I gotta, I really gotta, you know, bust a hump and I gotta stay late or I gotta come home and get the kids to bed and turn the computer back on. And my wife has to do that too. She's still a CPA and works as the director of financial reporting for her company. And so we both have to do a little bit of give and take there, but it is nice now that you've kind of paid those dividends early on. It does provide you a little bit more flexibility now so that when you got to leave to go to soccer practice or go watch a soccer game, you know, it's, it's okay to do those things. And I, I think that's the thing that people need to realize is that it's okay to do those things. In fact, it's extremely important because I am of the mindset that one day when I'm on my deathbed, I will never have regretted that I didn't work more, right? right. It'll be the, that, that is not what I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember that I didn't go to that soccer game or I didn't take the time to have that, that conversation with my son or go on that date night with my wife. So there is a balance that you do need to strike there, but there also has to just be sort of a, a, an understanding at home too, that you do have a responsibility, not only to your, your family to provide, but you know, to your, your coworkers. And, and especially at this level, I'm one of four people primarily responsible for making sure that the 330 checks that we cut every week, that provides a lot for well over a thousand people, right? So there is that responsibility as well. Yeah. And I agree. And, and, you know, when I was CFO, you know, I, I came into the company and the accounting and finance function, that group, that team, they were working, you know, six to seven days a week consistently. And I told him, I said, Hey, look, I understand there's going to be times when we have our audit. There's going to be times when we're in the middle of a transaction. There's going to be times where we may be implementing new software and we may have to get in there and crank, like you said. But, But I think there's a problem in your accounting and finance function 
if you are constantly just oh. grinding like that with your team. And I, I think it's just going to burn them out. And, and like you alluded to is you're not going to be very effective if you're just working all the time. I mean, if you're just cranking yeah. like that full speed, there's no way you could be effective in your role. And eventually you're going to burn out and you're going to miss out on a lot of, of opportunities to spend time with people. And really, isn't that what it's all about, right? Absolutely. And let's not forget that we were, we were designed with a, a very, you know, a relational component. You have to feed that. And if you're ignoring it, everything else is just going to suffer at some point. It's inevitable. And two, you know, accountants, right? So if you have a group of accounting and finance professionals under you that are, that are up and coming in their career, uh, those people, you know, really, they're kind of cut from that cloth of, you know, they manage a to-do list and the, and the good ones do it well, but they have to have a sense of, I'm caught up on my to-do list. If those, if those types of people never feel like they're caught up, it'll just burn them out quicker yeah. and you'll start, you'll start losing them and have a lot of turnover. I agree. Absolutely. When I, when I first met you, Troy, one of the things that really impressed me was your mindset of like strategic financial leadership. How would you say that strategy and finance correlate? And can you provide an example when your financials were directly impacted by your strategy? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of examples, right? And, and sometimes you just got to try things out and, and you got to see what happens, right? And it could be the wrong decision. And so an example of that is we were a general contractor focused uh, geographically in Colorado and Wyoming. While I've been there, we've been as far as California, never to return there, but, and, and Arizona, right? But right now, just kind of focused on Colorado and Wyoming. And there was a desire over the last decade to really kind of grow a little bit geographically. And we've had two different fits and starts around trying to develop these ideas of these divisions, Right have someone focused on a healthcare division. And then that kind of fizzled out. And then it, it morphed here, I don't know, five years or so ago into a, a Northern division, right? Somebody that might be more focused on getting work in the Northern Colorado, Wyoming, maybe go up to uh, Montana or something like that. And then a Western division, right? Just focused on all the work, you know, West of sort of the, the, the Black Hawk and Central City area, just, you know, all the way out to Grand Junction. And those, those didn't work. And I think the lesson there was is that, especially for a general contractor, because we operate on such razor thin margins, you got to really watch how those decisions may start to increase your, your overhead and your cost structure that quite frankly can start to make you uncompetitive. And that's what it ended up doing. Uh, these divisions were just adding unnecessary layers, not only into our overhead, but into our what, what a general contractor calls its general conditions, right? We often compete on those general conditions, you know, the salaries of superintendents and project managers and, and the support needed there. And it was just creating a bunch of layers. It's interesting these times, you know, who knew it would be a pandemic that would usher in a, an economic downturn. But those have a way of just really shining a light on these areas where you've put on some fat and you've got you've gotten a little complacent. So that's where I think sometimes, you know, strategy and finance disconnect. So then what we did, where it really I think is going to connect, time will tell, we took a step back and, you know, really dug into some historical numbers. And and this is where you know, my genius, any, any CFO's genius can come out. You can, you can look at some historical perspectives. You can look at market trends. You can present things in a way to really start getting people to see what's actually going on. What are the numbers actually telling us? 
And what we decided to start doing here a couple of years ago was instead of focusing on growing the top line, right? Just man, just expanding general construction work. We need to get focused on diversifying our profitability, our gross profit. Now, how, how can we do that? So we started doubling down on our ability to do self-perform work. So we started doubling down on our concrete. And last year we launched an interiors division, right? Mm-hmm. It's all within our DNA to do this. And let's see if this starts to drive some disproportionate fees, gross profit within our financial structure. And sure enough, it did. You know, the gross profit that we earned from our concrete and self-perform uh, interiors group this last year is far and above anything we've ever done in the past with our self-perform work. But it became a strategic focus to focus on it. The other thing we did is we started thinking about what's something that can help us be a bit recession-proof that's not as you know prone to these these ebbs and flows that we experience as a general contractor. And through a lot of research discussions with our consultants, we started realizing that there's no barriers to entry and it's a pretty unsophisticated business to get into the restoration world, restoration and then reconstruction. And that was the piece that we realized that was missing. These companies go in and they'll, they'll fix some, you know, they'll tear out walls and they'll dry out carpets and whatnot. And then it just kind of stops there. Well, we can come back in and actually rebuild it with no problem. So we thought that'd be a pretty exciting thing to do. And the margins in that world are unbelievable, right? Because it's all about, you know, speed, right? Got to get these people back in their homes, back in their buildings. So we launched now two divisions, one in Arizona and one in Colorado with the hopes that this will actually focus our abilities on our gross profit. So I think that's where it's, you know, time will tell if this latest iteration that we're going through, if it's going to work out. But I, I think that's that there's a story to be told there and how a CFO can can paint some pictures through some analysis that will influence the directions that a company may go and and then certainly lessons learned uh, after you've gone there. Yeah, you know, and I, I absolutely agree. And that those are some really good examples of this topic that we're we're talking about, the strategic financial leadership. And what you're doing in the CFO role is is exactly that. It's it's being more of a strategic leader. You're participating, you know, at board level discussions and you're thinking more broadly, more macro about the business rather than just sharing an income statement or a balance sheet and contributing just from a, a numerical perspective. Those numbers, what I would say to that is those numbers, I think as a CFO, what you got to be really good at is you got to be a good storyteller. You know, those numbers, there's a story behind them. And, and what is it? What is it that it's telling you? Yeah. And I think that story is absolutely critical because if you just came to the table and when you guys were having these decisions about expanding or opening new ventures or whatever it was, you know, if you just brought the numbers or, you know, some forecast or some type of model to the table, but you didn't have that story, if you couldn't communicate that story, you'd probably be a lot less effective in persuading people and and getting buy-in to these type of strategic decisions. So how do you see the the CFO role continuing to evolve into the future? Well, my perspective really is on those privately held companies. And I think, you know, depending on the size of them and and or the complexity of the business, I, I just think that there's that opportunity to really partner with the with the CEO in a way to where you're you're kind of just that you're that trusted business advisor, right? Because it's not always just about the numbers, but let's be mindful of risk too, right? 
And you certainly don't want to show up as, as chicken little. It's more about just here are the potential scenarios right in front of us, right? If we do A or B, here, here's the things we need to be mindful of as, as we move forward. And so I think it's just that trusted business advisor to bring this stuff to light. And then the thing that I find much more fun, especially with a company our size, is now you get to go execute it right? You actually yep. get to see your efforts. Once you make a decision, you get to go see your efforts moving forward. And, and that's, the, that's the fun part of it where many, many CEOs, depending on the type of leader a CEO is, you know, oftentimes characterized by the visionary, you know, great ideas, you know, good business acumen, has, has a vision, but may not be the best at the execution side of it, right? And so that's where you, you can come in and <laughs> really make sure things are getting done. I agree. And I think the CFO is going to play more and more of a role in that position, not only on the strategy design side that you're talking about, but on the execution side the execution as well. execution side of it, for sure. I mean, I, I have become the, the keeper of our strategic plan, right? I mean, I make sure I manage the dates, the communication out to all the, the business unit leaders that are involved in helping develop it and the check-ins that we do. And yeah, it's, that, that's the fun part of it. How does a CFO, so you're in this role and you're the keeper of the strategic plan like you referred to, and you're out there leading the group, you're inspiring them, and, and, and you're a part of like the, the top leadership of the organization. And then when most people hear the word strategy, they probably think, oh no, you know, here's another plan or here's just more work that's going to be heaped on me. How does a leader in your position keep everybody excited about strategy and about you know, going out there and reinventing the organization or just, you know, improving their own skills and setting goals for themselves. How do you, how do you do that when people may already feel overwhelmed and just bombarded with tons of information and to-dos? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's the key to it, right? And our strategic plan has definitely evolved over the years. And I, I had to really I had to beat the drum for a long time because I, it did feel like we would leave these strategic plans with just a gigantic to-do list and weren't quite sure how it all fit together. And so you, you got to be willing to push and refine and, and find out what's out there, who's doing what, and just be a consummate learner. And, and we have landed on what I think is a great strategic plan now. It has been bought into the the business unit leaders see the value of it and that wasn't always the case right there was this oh what's the what's the new flavor of the month you know kind of an attitude or you know how long is this going to be around for but this this journey that we've been on i would say especially the last three years has got us to where we are now and now people see it they're focused on it and what we did that is enormously important is at a high level, we developed our goals, our financial goals. And as the C-suite, we developed three key strategies that we feel would help us achieve those goals. And those strategies are just strategies. They're just big ideas, right? Yep. But we tasked these business unit leaders that their, their individual business units, they had to develop specific business plans. And, and I developed a framework for their business plans. And what we're using now is, is highly effective because it's, it's focused and to the point, they have to have their initiatives that, are, that will help support those strategies. And then they have to have KPIs that they're measuring. So everybody, everybody has at least two or three KPIs. 
And that took some work over the last couple of years. And so now all the initiatives, all the action items that they push down to their individual team members are focused on those KPIs. And it's in every department, right? It can be something as simple as user satisfaction and integration points, right? Those are two KPIs in our IT department. And, and then how that starts to support, you know, these broader, bigger initiatives. The accounts receivable turnover in, in financials, you know, cash is king well, for every business and especially for a contractor. And, you know, how does, what kind of initiatives are you working on and how is that forcing you to partner with operations to get that accounts receivable turnover down, right? We've broken down profit per scarce resource on our jobs. And that is now a KPI that is enormously important to us that everybody is focused on all the way back to the business development aspect of this. Our rework and our self-perform, we are highly focused now because of a KPI in our self-perform business plans around rework. And so the partnership with IT to be able to develop those codes and those metrics to be able to dashboard that now has been the evolution of the strategic plan for the last couple of years. And it's just exciting to see. And now everybody is, because we're actually having a pretty good year despite COVID, we're seeing the benefit of this strategic plan coming forward. And so that's, the, that's where the proof's in the pudding. And that's where the excitement around these, you know, these individual business unit leaders are coming in and they're, they're bought in now. So not always the case. And I think you just have to keep pushing to find what's going to work for, you know, your organization. Well, and I, I think you touched on some very critical things and, you know, I absolutely agree, you know, and I, I like how you talked about the strategy process. It's a journey, right? At first you, know, you, you put something out there and it's a little clunky or a little awkward and then you fine tune it and it takes a little bit of time, but that's what it's about. You know, too many companies, they, they try to go out and, you know, just do strategy over the weekend, right? Type of thing and put together a strategic plan. And, and if it doesn't work out, they say, see, I told you this kind of stuff doesn't work. Let's doesn't just go work. back to our, our normal behavior. Yeah. And, and I like how you touched on that and said, hey, it's a journey and it's a process. And now you have this well-defined process and you can scale it and you can, you know, take it to functions of your business and, and they can scale it and you could take it to other businesses as you're starting these new companies and investing in these new ventures, you know, now strategy is scalable and I love that. So that, yeah. that's great advice. And, and, and the business plan and the strategy that we did, it just, it folded right into this expansion with this, this, you know, this restoration companies that we've started. It just, it folded right into it. And even they're seeing the benefits. Now we're having the, the challenge of, okay, what are the KPIs for that? In fact, we just talked, I just met yesterday with the president of our restoration company, and we were talking about the differences between a construction company and this restoration company specific to marketing. As a general contractor, traditional marketing, you know, advertising or, you know, the Google AdWords, you know, print, uh, media, that's not what sells a 250, you know, the next $250 million hospital. But when your house is flooding, right, or your building's flooding, traditional marketing does play a role. So we started thinking about how is that traditional marketing spend, especially around Google AdWords, because that is unbelievably expensive. How is that translating to a, a, a profit per dollar on that, on that spend. And so we started thinking yesterday, maybe that is a KPI right there that we really need to be paying attention to. So it was a fun conversation yesterday, but it's folding right into what we've done with this 
this evolution of our strategic plan. Yeah. And I, I think that's so smart. And, and I like how you said, you know, the simplicity where you said, Hey, look, we're going to focus on three things and then we're going to measure it with these KPIs. And I think that clarifies and it crystallizes it for people and they can start focusing their attention. And, and when they do that and they start seeing, seeing a, results being achieved and they start seeing progress, then they buy into the strategy process that much more. And, you know, and I think too, there, there have been people along the way, this journey that we've been on, like I said, I mean, where we're at today really probably started five years ago and, and it just kept getting refined and a little, little further, a little further to where now I feel like we have a really good process. We can't ever get stagnant, right? Well, this will have to, uh, there'll be an iteration of this, but I feel like we're at a point now where what we've done we're, we're probably good with, you know, at least for a couple of years now, right? And we can really drive this in and then and look for the next one. But where I was going was there have been people along the way that haven't bought into it. And, you know, that's part of our leadership. If you can't get people to uh, buy into it or change, then, you know, you, you can't be afraid to make a change. And there were some changes that have been made at some pretty high levels that, you know, just to clear some roadblocks. Yeah. And that could be difficult for sure, but it, it's for the greater good of the company. It is. Right? So along your career, you know, you've had to make thousands of decisions throughout your career. And as a leader, do you have any regrets or have you ever made like a big mistake where you're like, wow, I'd never do that again? <laughs> yeah. Good question. You know what? I, I asked that question in interviews. Uh, no one's ever asked me that. I, sh- I should know what that is. Oh, and then it's funny because most people, they say, oh, you know, I regret being such a hard worker or, you know, I, I regret being so good looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's certainly my regret, right? Um, I, I don't know if it's so much of a, re- a regret. Um, certainly have made mistakes uh, along the way. Nothing, you know, no, no, no career limiting mistakes. Probably, I don't know if it's so much of a regret or it's just, you know, my grandmother always used to say that, you know, youth is wasted on the young, I think is the saying that she used to say something along those lines. And I think I've I've started realizing what that means. And, you know, I wished looking back that some of the, some of the insight I have gained about myself that has only really come to light, say in the last five years, gosh, I would have given anything to have that knowledge you know, when, when I had started work at Arthur Anderson, I mean, uh, who knows where it would have gone, but you know, no regrets, just maybe looking back on it, saying that accurate self-insight would have been a really valuable tool very early on. And maybe there was something there, had I known, that could have made a difference. Just more self-awareness. More self-awareness. Yeah. I'll ask the same question to myself and I'll expose one of my mistakes. You know, when I was a CFO, one of my big mistakes was I didn't get out enough and walk around, which sounds so basic to do, right? But, you know, in my position, I was just so bombarded with meetings and, you know, demands on my time. And we were split up on two different floors. So on the third floor, we had our um, construction group. On the fourth floor, we had the executive team, the functions, and our our solar uh, business. And I, sadly, you know, there are times when a month would go by before I went down to floor three and just walking around and having conversations with people. Like when I look back on my time as CFO, I wish I would have got out more and had more conversations with people and freed up my time to do that. That was, that was a big mistake that I made in my leadership position. 
Yeah, and that's a that's a really good point, and that is something that that I that I struggle with as well. It's it's funny because I I do talk about that frequently with my executive assistant. <laughs> I need more space in my schedule here. How how can we do this? And she's like, "You're just in so many meetings," and so yeah, that is that is certainly something that is that is just uh, it it is top of mind, and I think it is so important. And and it's it's ironic because when you do do that, and I've even been told by the CEO. He's even said, he goes, look, you just, the, the fact that you talk about these numbers and that, you know, your transparency with the numbers, um, and it's a bit of a cultural deal just to be transparent with where we're at with everybody. People trust you, right? He reminds me of this and he goes, uh, there's certain things that he goes, I'm not, I don't even want to communicate because they, they, they tend to believe you more. And so I think that's a, that's an important reminder and, uh, and certainly something that I could do a better job on as well. And it can be challenging. I mean, so how, how do you like prioritize and how do you cut things out to make that time? Because it could be so demanding. I mean, not only do you have your, your family demands and you know, you have some personal things, you probably like hobbies that you want to engage in and then you go to work and there's all these demands on you there. And have you figured out a way to like focus more on like the most essential things and say no to things? Or is that a, a constant struggle for you? Like it is for me. It is a struggle and, you know, and, and as, as a CFO, I don't know what your uh, ro- role entailed, but, you know, for a privately held construction company at our size, it's not uncommon for a variety of different departments to report up underneath the CFO. So IT reports to me and as does HR, right? So I'm, the, I'm also the strategic leader uh, in those areas so that those just in and of themselves create demands. And then, you know, I partner a lot with our, our COO and our, our chief risk officer on a number of things, right? The property and casualty insurance reports up underneath me. So there's just no shortage of things to do, right? And, you know, this is a conversation I have with my, my executive assistant. So I might say, as an executive, if you don't have, especially a C-suite executive, if you don't have a really top-notch executive assistant that can stay a step ahead of you and start to anticipate your needs, uh, you're, you're missing out. You, those, those opportunities, I think, are going to be even more difficult. So right now, my executive assistant, you know, behind my wife and my two boys is probably the fourth most important person in my life because <laughs> she, she, uh, she keeps my sanity level, right? Sure. And just blocking and tackling, staying ahead of me. And the other thing that she does, I think that helps is she's gotten really good at just blocking out office hours for me so that I can either A, get stuff done or find times to do things like this or get out to our job sites. It's certainly still not enough, but it's it's something and it's getting better. Yeah, it's such a critical role and I, I absolutely agree with that. So say somebody's listening right now to this this interview and they're thinking, wow, I want to become more strategic. I want to be more involved in the storytelling of the business. And, you know, I want to partner more on the operational side and with the CEO, but more of a transactional person or more of a compliance type person. And maybe they don't have those skills that that you had just that were naturally instilled in you from childhood. What advice would you give them? How do they make that transition from that green shade CFO in the back room, you know, just producing financial reports and models and forecasts to one who is more of this partner to other parts of the business, more strategic? 
Oh, I think there's a couple things. I mean, I think there's there's a couple of really good books, you know, that you should go read. There's a there's a few. I've started a, a list of books that I want to give my boys once they get up into college that I'd really like them to read. And and so I think that's a good place to start. You know, that can start to challenge a, a mindset a little bit differently and different ways to think. If your company is willing to do it, and you know you're an up and coming star, and the company's willing to you know make the investment in you. Get some executive coaching. There are great coaches out there that can help you start to develop that mindset. And the good ones will challenge you. And then as you do those things, right, if you're committed to be a little bit of a learner, right, there's almost like an element of, you know, going back to school and kind of getting, you know, the, the equivalent of like an MBA or something like that, right? You got you to put some effort into it on your own part. But then some point, you got to just go try something, right? You got to do something that just gets you out of your comfort zone. And you, you go take the lead on something, you know, you, you, you identify a problem, you tie it back to how it'll benefit the strategic plan and the organization, the greater good, right? Not benefiting you, but the greater good. And then, you know, you develop a plan, you get it approved and you go execute on it. You know, I think if you just get some practice and a willingness to get outside your comfort zone, you know, those things have a way of just kind of snowballing from there. Yeah, that's great advice. And you and you've been very successful in your career so far. Is there something else that you want to accomplish? Yeah, retirement. You know, I'm I'm looking forward to retirement at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and what would you do if you were retired? Yeah, that'll be that'll kind of be the mark of a of a successful career, right? Just, you know, retire and my wife and I have this vision of uh getting a, a motor home, kind of ditching the trailer that we have that we pull behind the truck and getting a motor home and being campground hosts, you know, being able to travel a little bit in the summer and then, you know, go somewhere in the, in the winter and see if the boys, hopefully they end up getting married and having kids and being a grandparent someday. And maybe there's a chance to be a pilot in the future, huh? Yeah. I've thought about that, you know, and, uh, although as I've gotten a little bit older, I've got, you know, that that's where there, there certainly is that account in me. I get a little uh, cheap sometimes and on one hand, it'd be fun to do, but, you know, I'd rather go to the soccer fields right now and watch my boys play soccer. And quite frankly, I don't want to spend the money. So I'm okay with that one. But as far as the career goes, the the only, you know, I mean, just a couple things. I, uh, you know, I had served on the board of this school, you know, since it founded. Me and five other people were the founding board members, and I still serve uh, as the as the treasurer of this school. And that that's going to be winding down. I will have started this school to a point where my youngest son started in, in uh, preschool and got all it's pre-K all the way through eighth grade. And so he's now in, in sixth grade. So in two years, my la my term, my board term ends when he leaves, when he's done in eighth grade and, and that's good enough. And, and that'll be a, a neat legacy to have been a part of. And so as far as a career aspiration goes, I do want to, I do want to get onto a board. Um, I serve on the board of our company. I find that highly engaging, really like the perspectives. And I would like to be able to do that for a, you know, a privately held uh, mid-sized company someday. And so I think that would be super fun to just be able to, you know, give back some of the things I've learned to a company that might've been where we were at one point experiences to share and then and then too just to learn from them you can always i do like getting different perspectives on things and uh, it, it's always a two-way street in a in something like that so i think that would be fun too that would be something fun to do here as i look to the next you know 15 years 
Yeah. And I think you'd be incredibly good at it. Well, I, you know, it's, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Troy, and I think you've done a, an amazing job being the strategic financial leader. And I know you inspire a lot of people and a lot of people look up to you. So I appreciate your time today. I know you're a busy guy and I appreciate what you're doing to the industry and just for this uh, role of the strategic financial leader and, and being a good example and pushing that forward. So thanks again for your time. And it's been a wonderful um, opportunity to get to know more about you. And I know the audience will definitely appreciate your perspective. Yeah, no, I appreciate the invitation. This this was a lot of fun. I, I, I'm very grateful for it. So thank you very much. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best.